Today, though, we actually do have a pretty cool person on the podcast. Absolutely the oldest person that I've ever met that is donor conceived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was one of the things that I found so interesting about him when I met him was like, huh, I just didn't realize we were doing that then. I, I didn't either. He did. Right. Right. I guess no one did. That's the whole story. That- right. I had no idea that like fertility clinics even really existed. I mean, granted, they were on the back of a magazine. Is, isn't that what he said? It was like on the back of like I a. I think so. Like and a- I don't want to say it was it's clinics multiple. I feel like this yeah. is the, this was the launch of that. Yes. Did he say that it was at Harvard? It was, yes, it was some sort of like Harvard affiliate is what it sounded like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's in Boston. So it was in Boston, some sort of Harvard right. affiliate. But he said that he, for the life of him, has searched and searched and searched and cannot figure out what the name of the clinic was or who the doctor was. So that's pretty fascinating, too. Well, again, it probably wasn't a clinic. Right. It was right, probably right. just like this one guy. Yeah. And... Uh, it's so interesting, though, to think about the secrecy about that and totally. the fact that it was happening, but nobody knew that it was happening. Super cool. Cool right? story. Um, it's a very cool story. But his name is Peter Bonnie, by the way. <laughs> um, and he's actually written a book. I have forgotten what it was called all of a sudden because I, I believe have... it's called Uprooted. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is called that. Uprooted. And I did read the book. I did read the book. Now, it's been a little while since I read the book, so I can't tell you all the details. But if you're, I mean, it's historical. Um, it's deeply, he tells quite a bit about how hard he had to work to try to do this research. Because we have to remember, when this began, it was in the 90s, pre-internet Right. Pre Google, pre any of that. Right. So he was going to the medical school libraries and chasing genealogy, uh, you know, family trees and all mm-hmm. kinds of like old school hardcore research, which took a long, long time and didn't really have a breakthrough until the 2000s when DNA uh, started to become accessible. So the book explains it in great detail. And uh, talking with Peter about it, it's really cool because it's all in the context of today's world, which is lots of donor conceived people, lots of secrets that have mm-hmm. come to light. And really the biggest take home in the book is what that does to the person, mm-hmm. what that does to a person and not just people that are 18 and 20 and 25, people that are his age. In his 70s. Right. And what that did to him when he found out that his whole life had essentially been, um, I hate to call it a lie, but, you know, he was um, misled Misled, about his his origins and his birth story. And so to hear that come from somebody in his age group and to have that kind of retrospect, that's what I thought was super cool about it. And now he's such a big advocate for donor conceived rights. Um, he's really active on LinkedIn, by the way. I don't know if you can find him on any other social platforms, but he does post quite a bit on LinkedIn. So if you hear this today and you want to talk to Peter, I would recommend that be the place you go to find him. Definitely. Well, you summed that up very, very well, Erin. It was a really interesting conversation. And again, it was really fascinating to talk to somebody that is, you know, my mom's age, who is in her 70s, to talk about being a donor-conceived person. And I just did not realize that that was happening 
that's in, you know, 75 plus years ago. So it was really cool, really interesting. He also talks about how he was one of the first people to ever do 23andMe, like yeah, way when it right. first came out. Mm-hmm. That's right. I thought that was really cool because back in, I guess when he did it, it was like $1,000 to do 23andMe and now it is that's not right. that amount of money. So yeah, just a really interesting conversation from a really unique perspective because I truly don't know how many people are out there that are his age that know that they were donor conceived. Um, so yeah, it was really cool. And we hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, you guys tune in. For what it's worth, you do look cool and you do look professional without the mic. <laughs> Thank you. Much appreciated. Okay. So um, you said we're going to call you Peter, right? We're not calling you Mr. Bonnie. Bonnie? Bonnie? Uh, Bonnie. And uh, Mr. Bonnie was what the paper boy used to call my dad. So uh, yes. Peter, Peter is fine. Peter is fine. Okay. So Peter, it's so great to talk to you. Um, I saw your post on LinkedIn, where you commented that Carrie Washington had come out and talked about being donor conceived. And that was the first time I encountered you. And then I did a little, you know, internet stalking like you do. Yeah, <laughs> no, you can't run and you can't hide. It's not anymore. They know where you are at all times. So I was really excited and I was really excited that you responded to me and you seemed like a really interesting person to add to our conversation. All right, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Peter, yes, we are so excited to have you here. And I would love it if you could share with me because obviously I, once Aaron had forwarded me your information, I stopped your website and learned a lot about you that way. But I would love for obviously the listeners to hear a brief overview of your background and how you found out you were donor conceived and how that led you kind of into the reproductive industry. All right, well, let's start with the donor conception uh, thing and work backwards from there uh, and then forwards from there. Uh, in 1995, I was age 49, CEO of a high tech company in Boston, uh, going through a marital crisis. And my wife and I uh, were, uh, in the midst of uh, dinner one night and uh, uh, several events came to be and she ended up telling me that my mother, who had just been admitted to a rehab center for a stroke, a post-operative stroke, she had open heart surgery and a, and a stroke, was beginning to tell some stories uh, to visitors. And among the stories is that my biological father wasn't the dad that I thought he was. I was conceived with the help of an anonymous sperm donor, thanks to a fertility clinic sponsored by Harvard Medical School in 1945. Wow. So uh, uh, that uh, was disruptive from an identity standpoint. I'll say it was traumatic from an identity standpoint. I had always thought that my experiences were the fabric of uh, who I had become. I always took my DNA for granted. Um, 
a dysfunctional childhood, disruptive in many ways. My dad was sick, uh, unipolar depression, hospitalized for several years back and forth. Uh, I had moved to maybe 11 different schools between the first and the eighth grade. Uh, I always uh, contributed my uh, adaptability to that early instability in my childhood. Right. Uh, I had gotten a college education and that opened doors of opportunity for me that I never thought possible. And here I was a, a CEO of a, of a high-tech company. And uh, I had some early experiences in combat as a special operations infantry officer, a team leader in Vietnam. So the whole combat thing uh, was uh, an issue for me as well. And I always, contributed my collaborative leadership style to my special operations training. Like I said, I took my DNA for granted, but uh, the, uh, the trauma of uh, identity disruption, I learned from a therapist, I rekindled old traumas thought long past. Uh, my dad took his own life when I was 16, old school Italian family, don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody about it. It will shine over on us and they'll think we are flawed too. I mean, was I flawed? But I bought into that whole program and never talked about it. Uh, the same thing holds true for uh, being a Vietnam veteran in 1970 when I returned home. The sociology at the time was don't talk about it. Don't let anyone know. Uh, they'll think ill of you, call you a baby killer or what have you. And I was... Uh, confronted the first day I arrived home by uh, my fellow citizens who were doing similarly and attacked me at a restaurant when I was in my full uniform. Uh, so I just learned, well, don't talk about it. Uh, there was no word for PTSD back then. It was just uh, camouflage your feelings and uh, don't talk about it. Uh, so my, uh, my wife encouraged me to uh, seek some therapy and so did some of my friends. And I bought into the old school of therapy uh, if uh, that I saw in both the boardroom as well as the war room. If you're needy or weak, perhaps you're unfit for command. Well, I was a CEO, but I needed some help. So I sought some help very discreetly and cycled through a couple of different therapists before I found the right one for me. And uh, he taught me something. He said, you know, New trauma, this identity trauma that you're experiencing, rekindles old traumas thought long past. I said, son, you just hit a trifecta. <laughs> uh, Muhammad Ali used to say something about, uh, uh, it's not the marathon that wears you down, it's the stone in your shoe. I had three stones in my shoe mm -hmm. and I couldn't resolve any one of them. I had to confront all three. So I worked really hard uh, at that whole process. And at the same time, I was doing marital therapy with my wife. Uh, so I never worked as hard in my whole life. It was a big turnaround for me. Therapy ain't no joke. <laughs> it's not It's not easy to sit down and rehash and discover and all those things. So I commend you that you did multiple at one time. Well, it was a need to. It wasn't a want to. It was a need to. So I, did what, I did what I needed to do. Right. So. Go ahead, B. I was just going to say, um, so tell me a little bit about how that experience was when you learned from your wife that your mother was telling stories. Like, how did that unfold for you? 
Well, uh, there was uh, many uh, uh, conflicting feelings all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, I was angry. I was relieved. You know, I wasn't carrying a, a, a gene uh, that was uh, uh, bound for depression. Mm -hmm. uh, I was happy and sad all at the same time. I never grieved properly for my dad and his death to begin with. So I was re rekindling all the grief that I had uh, uh, for him. Uh, so it was a confusing uh, period of time with many conflicting emotions, like I stated. Uh, there were no records kept in 1945 about this either. My mother's memory was a little uh, confused when I discussed this with her. At first, she, uh, I took her home from rehab and uh, let her settle into her home and finally talked to her about this. And initially, she said, oh, no, I never said anything like that. I must have been delusional. So it took a little while for her to come around to tell me the total truth. Uh, she had misremembered the name of the doctor and the location of the clinic, but she was definitive that the, the doctor was a Harvard professor. His name was Sims, and uh, his office was on 10 Beacon Street in Boston. Well, I could not find any Harvard professor, oh. Sims, or any location of a doctor's office, uh, a fertility doctor, especially, or any kind of a doctor other than an oral surgeon at 10 Beacon Street in, in Boston. So with the clues that went nowhere and no records, I did the only thing that I could do for me, and that was do a deep dive of research into the very science that enabled my creation to begin with. And, and I want to remind everybody, this is pre, what year was this? You said 1998? No, no, 1995 was three years before Google was founded. Right. So there was no internet resources. This it was is 12 years. It was 12, oh, years, 12 years before DNA was invented. The right. internet was invented. DNA testing over the internet. Uh, so this is old fashioned going to the library, looking up historical documents and genealogies that way. The gumshoe approach. Exactly. And I, I visited both the, uh, Boston Public Library, which was nearby my uh, condo on uh, in the Back Bay of Boston. And I also went across the river, went across the Charles River to the Harbor Medical School's research library for uh, medical history. So I looked at uh, donor conception all the way from biblical references right through to the, uh, the present day with this deep dive of research. So that's just like, I, I am having a hard time wrapping my brain around how your mother even got to the donor stage. I mean, was it just an apologies if this is like too personal of a question, but in 1945, I mean, I think even today people still assume it's the women, woman's issue most of the time when non-educated people are thinking about needing reproductive assistance. So how did that happen? Like, how did they get to the point where they were like, let's try a donor? Yeah, good question. Uh, they were married for five years, mm. uh, no child. Uh, my mother claimed that she saw an ad or an article in a newspaper or a magazine. She couldn't remember which. Whoa. Uh, about a uh, Harvard 
fertility clinic. Uh, so she uh, signed my dad up to go visit the Harvard Fertility Clinic. And he tested both of them and determined that uh, my dad was sterile. He had some uh, medical trauma when he was a teenager and uh, that rendered him uh, infertile. So their choices that he outlined were three, remain childless, one, uh, adopt a child, two, or do this newfangled thing that uh, was around called conception through an anonymous sperm donor. Everything was very hush-hush secret and trust him. He knew my dad uh, and would find an appropriate match and the match would be anonymous and probably affiliated with Harvard Medical School in some way. Right. So they signed up to this cloak of secrecy that was there at that time to conceive me through the anonymous sperm donor. Now, I, I never had a clue that my dad wasn't my dad. Uh, and he never acted like I was anything other than his son, but I always had a, some kind of a, a feeling that something was askew. Uh, Northern Italian family, I got his of Northern Italian blue eyes, uh, but I had uh, a fair complexion, easy sunburn, uh, blonde hair when I was a kid. Now I'll take any color I can get, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you look great. And uh, I had, uh, so that, that was a little strange, but I accepted that. And then as I grew, I found that uh, my family was somewhat intimidated by my academic and then my life's achievements. I didn't understand that uh, on both sides, actually. Intimidated how? What does that mean? Were they, are you a first generation college graduate? Is that? First generation college graduate, always a good student, not only science and math, but also English and, and history. Uh, with, an, with an interest academically. Is that uh, the notion of superiority thing? Like, because you were academically inclined, you thought you were better than everyone else? Is that? The I way? never felt that way, but. Uh, well, is I, that what they uh, interpret it to, to be? Some family members, uh, I, I just interpreted it. Something was wrong. I didn't know what. And then as I uh, started my business career, you know, there are people that, are intimidated by people in positions of authority. There are other people that are angry with people that are in positions of authority. Uh, but I was just, uh, I was just Pete, you know, but uh, why are you angry with me? Why do you feel intimidated with me? So something was askew with the family and how they were treating me with my academic and my life's achievements. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but I just knew what something was askew. Did anybody else in your family know, or was it just your parents that knew? Uh, my mother said that her mother knew. Gotcha. And, uh, and my dad and, 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 uh, and she knew, but that was it. Wow. And of course the doctor. Right. Were you successful in finding out who that doctor was with all your research? Like, how did that, how did that unfold for you? How did you? Well, I, it took 22 years of research, actually. Wow. Uh, and there's this uh, thing called genealogical bewilderment. That was a psychological term put out there in the 1960s by a pair of psychologists that were studying 
adoptees and sometimes the adoptees that had a difficulty in the sense of finding their own sense of belonging. Well, in the old days, they called donor conception semi-adoption. It's a way of, uh, of um, making it socially more acceptable. Labeling something. Uh, so I was semi-adopted, let's say, and feeling all those feelings of uh, genealogical bewilderment. What was my genealogy? If I wasn't Northern Italian, what was I? Uh, what was my medical health history? Yeah. It's not important. Why would a doctor ask you every time you sit down with a new doctor what your medical health history is? Or and, familial health history. And lastly, did I have any siblings? I was raised as an only child. Uh, did I ever date a sibling <laughs> or worse? Uh, so uh, these things uh, just would not uh, be resolved. I just kept on pounding away doing my research, going nowhere uh, except finding the history of donor conception. I like the phrase that you used, identity disruption. Where did that come from? Where did the phrase come from? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that was already present and you discovered it in the research or was that sort of a, a new term that we had to come up with as people in your age group were discovering that they were donor conceived because I'm assuming you're probably not the only person in your age group that found out this information maybe later in life or some other way yeah some other way well 1995 there was no DNA over the internet uh, which is the primary way today that people are getting this identity disruption. Uh, and uh, there was a word misattributed. I never heard the word misattributed before. Uh, I knew other miswords, you know, misnomer, misunderstood, misconceived. But misattributed means that your, your genealogy, your DNA, and your birth certificate just aren't lined up. They don't jive. Something is out of skew. Uh, how can that be? Mm -hmm. Well, late discovery adoption is a, a very large reason. How about an extramarital affair right. or a one night stand or an unreported sexual assault? Uh, people could be switched at birth or more likely uh, Aunt Martha raised them and they thought Aunt Martha was mom, but really cousin Mary, 15 years younger, was mom, you know, raised by another family member. That happens in families even today. Or like me, uh, donor conceived through an anonymous donor and a secretive process. And uh, my research says that by the time I was conceived, maybe there were 3,000 or so donor conceived individuals. Wow. And, and the latest survey in 2010 by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, they calibrated about a, a million adults that were donor conceived. Wow. Many of them don't know. Most of them don't know. And between 2010 and today, there's been another half a million people that have been conceived through a, uh, a donor, uh, through artificial insemination. Now, have you met other people with similar stories in this process? Recently, I have. But in 1995, I felt so 100% alone in this whole process. I can imagine. How did it go once you found out and it was time or 
how did you decide to tell your other family members, your children? Because it's a disruption to everyone in the family, I'm assuming. Well, in 1995, when I learned, uh, the first thing I did was tell my children, who are then uh, 21 and 25, I think, uh, of my mother's story. And I had uh, three close friends and I told them. And I kept it very contained in a closed circle. And once I uh, did my research, I began to open up a little bit and uh, told another friend what I had learned about donor conception. And he said, you know, Pete, I used to uh, raise, read Rottweilers. And I'll tell you that there are more regulatory uh, pressures, more regular, there's more regulatory oversight on breeding puppies than you're telling me there are to conceive human beings. And once I heard that, I thought, you know, this could be a pretty thought provoking book someday, but I can't tell that story without finishing my own story. Uh, so it took me 22 years of uh, research. 12 years after 1995, this new company called 23andMe came out with what Time Magazine called the invention of the year in 2008. And that was the DNA testing over the internet. So I was one of the early customers testing on 23andMe. And it was expensive. You noted that in your book. It was, you paid a hefty price. $999. Wow. $1,000. Uh, and in uh, 2017, when I did the Ancestry.com test, that was $99 list price. I was going to say, I did 23andMe. My husband and I both did it in 2019. And I believe we paid $99 a piece is what we paid for 23andMe. Well, you know, uh, mainframe computer used to cost a million dollars, right? Right. <laughs> and now you have the power of a mainframe computer in your hand yep. for about $1,000. Yep. Technology works that way, $999 to $99. That, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, so I did the 23andMe. Actually, I was uh, working as a, uh, as a head of a venture capital company at the time. And uh, I learned from an advisory board, a life sciences advisory board, that they were very excited about this new company called 23andMe uh, because the whole gene pool testing would open up a branch of medicine that they called personalized medicine. So uh, not telling them why I was so excited to take 23andMe test, I took the 23andMe test as an early, early customer. In technology, early customers of, a of an unproven technology are called the, the lunatic fringe, the innovators. <laughs> so I was the first of the, the lunatic fringe to sign up to 23andMe for $999. And I learned that I wasn't Northern Italian. I was English, French, and a sliver of Scandinavian. Well, okay, I can live with that. But the database of customers wasn't large enough for me to find any relative who was paternal. Gotcha. So I'm very disappointed in that. But I thought if I just wait it out, eventually the customer base will accumulate right. and I will find somebody. And nine years later, I was still back to where I was and not seeing any paternal relatives 
on 23andMe, very frustrated. My uh, adult children uh, uh, encouraged me to look somewhere else. And my son talked to me about Ancestry.com, who had got its start in family tree in, uh, information. And they added DNA over the internet uh, later. And by 2017, they were doing Black Friday advertising <laughs> on uh, television for $49. So I signed up uh, probably in the spring of 2017 for the Ancestry.com test and I paid list price. I didn't wait, I didn't wait, I didn't pull the trigger in November for the Black Friday sales. I did it in, uh, in May and uh, got my results in the summer of 2017. And that's when I uncovered a close relative first cousin, maybe. Uh, and I knew that that close relative first cousin was not maternal. And uh, through that connection, I discovered the source of my seed. And I, in my book, I go over the detail of how that unfolded. It's quite an interesting story, actually. It is. I enjoyed that. That was really cool. Well, yeah, I there are people that tell me that it reads like a mystery novel, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Well, can you give me a brief synopsis? I have not yet read your book. I'm going to read it after Aaron is done. Um, but can you just give me like a thousand foot overview of what happened, a sneak peek for listeners who will hopefully then go buy your book? Okay. Well, Ancestry.com uh, presented to me a close relative first cousin. I reached out and through a series of events over a three week period of time, she championed finding the source of my seed in her family tree and succeeded. Wow. Yeah. And you still have a relationship, right? You, you have become. We have a, a fast friendship now. Yeah. Actually, since my book was uh, published, I have uh, met other half siblings, uh, one other half sibling. I believe now I'm one of six, uh, two I have relationships with. The other ones don't seem to want to know. Wow. That's incredible. So was your um, biological father, was he, did he donate to other people or was this, did the, was this like a nuclear family that he had later on or like, how did that all work for him? Well, I thought for the, for four years, I thought I was a one-off. Okay. Until other donor conceived children showed up. Gotcha. And so did the donor know that he was fathering multiple families or was that something that the physician did and the donor really had not much idea or do you even know i can project that the donor knew that he was donating for a fertility clinic and mm -hmm. uh, that much he knew he didn't know if it was successful he didn't know uh, uh, anything beyond that but he donated more than once. So he knew that there was more than one chance that he had offspring out there. Interesting. So. And I found a loose affiliation between uh, the donor, if I can call him that, I call him the source of my seed, a loose affiliation from the source of my seed and Harvard Medical School. And B.F. Skinner is in the mix. I go over that in the book too. 
Yeah, the book is really fascinating. And I love that you brought it into sort of a present day setting. And so that was my next question, you know, considering, I think if you talk to the average person, they probably think that what we know of as reproductive technology really began with IVF and IUI. But obviously it doesn't. It goes way back before people even really knew that it was happening, obviously. So learning this and doing this most research and becoming affiliated with it, how do you feel about where it is today? Good question. You know, personally, I'm all for science to enable wanting people to have a family. Mm -hmm. uh, with consideration for the very people created by the science, people like me. Yeah, protection of offspring, for sure. So what does that look like then? So what do you, what do you, what do you envision that as far as protection of offspring or however you want to call it? What is what does an ideal wor world look like for that? Well, let's back up a little bit. Uh, the the practices of donor conception were driven underground mm -hmm. uh, by church and state, really. Uh, at the very beginning, the, the first- Because it was considered adultery. Yeah, they, they called it adultery by doctor then. Wow. Uh, courts uh, set a precedent in the 1920s that a, a donor-conceived child was considered illegitimate and a husband could be granted a divorce on the grounds of adultery. Wow. So yeah. let's say church and state both uh, drove it underground. Uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Church and, and others uh, uh, were all up in arms against uh, donor conception that was uh, against the laws of God. Right, right. But, you know, 15% of couples, uh, they thought then and still do now, have some uh, fertility issues by one or both. Uh, people right so, right. so the, my, the, my venture capital uh, background tells me that a unfulfilled demand of 15 percent of the population is a large large marketplace that creates a demand that has to be fulfilled absolutely. so it wasn't illegal but they, they they drove it underground in a cloak of secrecy so all of the donors were anonymous. They, they were told, don't tell anybody, uh, keep it a secret, and so forth. And so I think one of the things that's fascinating about this is because of DNA and these genealogy testing sites, there is no anonymous donor anymore. Pretty much all donors can be discovered whether they wanted to or not. And that was, and I think I mentioned this when I first um, contacted you, you know, we interviewed, we interviewed a sibling who was a sibling of like you, a uh, donor, and she's known, she knew that she was donor conceived. Her brother was also donor conceived, and they have discovered somewhere between 18 and 20 half siblings as it stands today. Some of them knew that they were donor conceived. Some of them had no idea and didn't find out until they were, you know, in their early adulthood and started doing these testing. Mm -hmm. And then we interviewed a young man who was a serial donor for a time period in his 18 years old to 20, somewhere in there. And he um, 
you know, they, they didn't give him any indication of how his donations would be used or any of those oversights. And so he's of an age now that he could very well have adult children that start coming to discover him. And he said, I really had never thought about it until we, you know, until you asked me about it and you brought it up. And now I have to start reconciling like any minute now, somebody might come and say, hi, I think you're my biological father. So I'm fascinated at the way that it went from the cloak of secrecy sort of into the public light into now this concept that there is no anonymity. Whether you want to or not, you're probably going to be discovered as a biological donor. Yeah, technology has advanced uh, far, far faster than the sociology has advanced, although the sociology has advanced as well. Uh, today, there isn't the same stigma of infertility as there used to be, uh, number one. Uh, number two, uh, you don't need to be a heterosexual couple to have children. Right. Uh, there are plenty of same-sex couples that are using egg, sperm, or embryo in surrogacy and science to have a family. Right. Uh, so uh, that cloak of secrecy is, is, is gone and anonymity is gone as a result of DNA testing over the internet. Yeah. But to answer your previous question of uh, what would I like to see? I think that's what you asked uh, for a, a, a donor conceived child. Well, certainly uh, no anonymity mm. uh, since it's obsolete anyway. Uh, I would have the right to know my genealogy and my health history, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that a basic Absolutely. right to know that? Yes. Uh, how, how, about a, how about a limit on the number of offspring per donor? Absolutely. That's a huge topic right now. There are people, you know, I'm, I'm not part of the frozen sperm generation. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents used a, an ethical specialist who wasn't uh, fraudulently using his own sperm on a countless number of uh, his patients. Right. Plenty of cases like that, too. So I'm not likely to have a hundred siblings. I, I wasn't part of the frozen sperm generation. Uh, my question now, since I know my genealogy, I know my health history, I know if I have siblings or not. My question that will be, remain unanswered for the rest of my life. How many siblings do I have really? Right. And what impact will that have on my children, my grandchildren? Uh, smart kids go to smart kids' schools. Is there any truth to a genealogical uh, sexual attraction? Or is that alchemy? I don't know, and I don't want my kids to find out. I, right. I want them to be conscious of this right up front. Right. And I think, too, you know, the, the whole concept of regionality. You know, if, you're, if you are a donor or if you're a center that uses donor, is there some... Should there be a protocol about distribution where you prevent all of those siblings from being so regionally attached where it is much easier to encounter each other? You know, should there have to be some sort of law or oversight? And I guess that's the other part of this is where, like you said about there's more restriction in animal husbandry and breeding than there is in what we're doing with humans. And I don't think... I don't think the government or society has really figured out how to catch up because all these things are happening so rapidly. And I feel like that's a big topic now is to 
you know, how do we set limits? Who's in charge? Is it by the states? Is it by the government? Is it the World Health Organization? Because it's not just our country that is experiencing this. I just feel like this is a giant political can of worms. Yeah, well, you're referring to a sibling registry on one hand, and there's no sibling registry. That's part and parcel of uh, what I would call a piece of the donor-conceived Bill of Rights. Okay. That doesn't exist? No, it does not exist. Uh, like I said, my friend uh, said there are more, uh, more regulatory oversight to breeding puppies. Uh, the, the canine, bovine, and equine community has more regulatory oversight in conception than the human being. Uh, there are no laws in effect to uh, address any of this. Uh, there's no law preventing a doctor from using his own sperm, for instance. That's called fertility fraud. Uh, there's no law that prevents a sperm donor, for instance, to lie about his background. Uh, I wonder that all the time. Yeah, he might say he's a PhD and speaks several languages, but really he's a convicted felon and a schizophrenic. True case, true case. With, wow. uh, with the three dozen siblings that all have issues as they grow to be adults. Three thousand so, siblings? Uh, how about some genetic testing that's required uh, for a donor or donor and recipient counseling about the needs of the donor conceived uh, up front? Uh, and some real laws in place that will uh, add legal consequences to blatant fertility fraud. None of that's in place. Now, wow. there's, one, there's one organization that's a trade association, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Mm -hmm. And they have the uh, fertility industry as their membership. Mm -hmm. Now, I was a chairman of a technology trade association, and I can see that the, they provide... Uh, education for their members. They provide networking for their members. And the big three is they provide some public policy for their members. That's another way to say they're a lobbyist. Right. Um, and they're trying to prevent regulation to enable the free market. Right. Uh, my my issue is not so much with the fertility practitioner as much as it is the uh, the gamut distribution organizations, the uh, sperm egg banks, uh, embryoid uh, banks that are enabling the conception of uh, 100 or more offspring from the same donor with nobody's knowledge. I will take just a minute to say you know, the ASRM annual meeting was just a few weeks ago. And looking through the, the titled list of classes that you could choose from, one of them, I can't remember exactly what the title is, but to paraphrase it, one of them is how to avoid getting in trouble with the FDA and whoever and whoever, um, which I thought, wow, what an interesting way to title that. It had nothing to do with how to behave appropriately or developing ethical considerations. It was how to avoid getting into trouble. And I thought, I think that speaks volumes about the approach for a lot of this that we're discussing? Well, the approach is for them, their, their, their focus, as I have been told by many in that field, is the successful outcome. Yeah, so like people like me are a successful outcome, but there's no voice inside of the ASRM that is the donor conceived voice. Right. Uh, so some concern about the donor conceived is just totally absent. Now, the ASRM will say they have guidelines mm -hmm. 
and their guideline is uh, no more than 25 offspring per 800,000 population. Well, let's talk about that. If I were in downtown Sacramento, California, or uh, downtown Boston, I could have 25 siblings with that guideline. Right. But if I were in metropolitan Boston, I'd have 125 siblings using that guideline. Now, if I'm in New York City or Los Angeles, as an example, I could have 250 siblings. Wow. Right using that guideline. And that guideline is uh, supposedly per, let's say, sperm bank. Well, if I'm a donor, maybe I go to four sperm banks. Right. And do we know when that guideline was enacted? Uh, I, I'm not, I, I know that answer, but I don't remember that answer. But it came about from the ASRM probably in the 60s and 70s. That's what I was going to say. I think, too, when the audience was or when the circumstances were different and essentially we had you had to give a sample because there was no way to maintain a sample. But now we live in this place where we can freeze this sperm inevitably. I feel like, yes, that absolutely should shift the way that we look at a demographic study, because I think we we had this assumption back then that, you know, over time, a person would not continue to do samples or I just think you can make a lot of assumptions that happened then that are not current. And so at what point is that guideline that has expired and we need to update that? Yeah, well, well part of the uh, what I'll call the donor conceived bill of rights is putting a limit to the uh, number of offspring per donor. That's, that's a real limit and uh, requiring a sibling registry as well. Registry think is really interesting to me because you know I'm I'm a hoping to adopt um, soon. Where and my husband and I are an active family um, because fertility treatments just didn't end up working out for us. So that's like something that we will do is that our child will go on a registry. We'll have to register them, um, which I find it really fascinating that that is not a thing for donor conceived children. Like that sounds crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. How do we repair this? How do we, who does this go to? Is this state legislator? Is this, how do you get this done? Well, there is a, uh, there are, let me back up. Uh, since publishing my book, I have been donating proceeds of my book uh, to two advocacy organizations that are working this whole thing. Uh, on a state by state by state by state basis, uh, but I'm uh, bound and determined to get this before the federal legislature as well. Uh, the state of Colorado last year was the first state to enact a donor conceived bill of rights. All of the all of the pieces that I just uh, stated, uh, the California legislature put forward the donor conceived bill of rights to the governor this past year as well. He refused to sign it. He didn't want the state to absorb the cost of the donor, the uh, sibling registry. So that's back to the drawing board. Uh, there are now 12 states that have laws in place that have penalties for blatant fertility fraud. But once again, that's on a state by state by state by state by state by state basis. And uh, trying to get Congress to uh, 
pay attention to anything these days is hard, but I'm bound and determined to have this place before the federal federal legislature as well. Well, I wanted to tell you that that's that this conversation, this type of conversation, really was the impetus for us to do the podcast and just being involved in fertility for a long time. And Bryant, you know, she has her own experience in the infertility realm. And the longer you participate, the more you discover all of these ethical and moral considerations that the average person doesn't know it even exists and certainly doesn't know how they feel about it or multiple viewpoints of it. And that was really why we said, we need to do a podcast about this to talk about sort of this dark underside of reproductive health because it affects a tremendous amount of people and yet nobody knows about it or they don't know how to do or who to speak to. And so we, um, if you'll give us the information, we can link all of those groups that you're working with. That way people that hear this, you know, can immediately go and participate and really just we want to open up the conversation to get more voices out there about this is real this is serious business yeah we'll put the, all that information in our show notes so there'll be direct links whatever you'd like for us to include we can put there the uh, the fertility industry uh, went through a, a real spike of growth through the advent of frozen gametes uh, sperm egg embryo uh, and that's been put onto steroids now uh, through uh, uh, the internet, number one, uh, social media, and uh, uh, number two, driven by money. Right. Now, uh, in, uh, in social media, it's possible now to get a, a donor uh, through a, a site that looks like Match.com or Etsy, customized. Uh, can you imagine getting a, a sperm donor, for instance, on Craigslist and what kind of quality control you have on that? imagine all right uh, you have uh, offshoring going on uh, just like manufacturers uh, went to uh, uh, China or India or what have you to get lower cost manufacturing uh, we have fertility tourism today uh, to get lower cost uh, gamuts uh, lower cost uh, health care I have a friend that went to Costa Rica to get lower cost dental implants you can go to varying countries and get lower cost fertility uh, clinic services and uh, then get uh, a, a egg or sperm donor shipped to you from wherever. Uh, speaking of money, there are forces out there that will uh, prey upon, let's say, uh, uh, poor women in Eastern Europe uh, and feed them with a good deal of uh, drugs in order to harvest their eggs and freeze those eggs and ship them to other clinics overseas. That was just a big discovery a few weeks ago. Now there's no quality control on that either. Right, right. There's also in the industry, a big conversation about the storage crisis because now you've had cryopreservation for enough years that people who own embryos that are frozen that have no intention of ever using them, but also have not destroyed them or put them anywhere else. And so now these cryobanks have 20 and 25 year old embryos that are just sort of sitting there and they don't know what to do with them, but they need the space. They need to reclaim the space for all of the 
fresh ones coming in. And so now these clinics are having to solicit families and say, what are you going to do with these frozen embryos? We can't keep them anymore. And that's a huge topic that we've talked to some of our embryology friends about and clinic owners about, you know, when we keep them on site at some point, there has to be an expiration date on that. And what do we do with that? There's a a science group in Australia, I believe, that is studying the health consequences to using aged frozen um, uh, gametes and embryo. Uh, and they're, they're preliminarily uh, looking at uh, some pretty negative statistics, but it's a little too premature just yet for them to publish. So they're still studying it. Uh, Speaking of ethical concerns and the advances of science, uh, also in Australia at Monash University, a, a very leading edge uh, reproductive technology university, uh, they recently published that they had a model embryo from uh, cellular tissue, human skin, no egg, no sperm. So uh, one of the top 10 secrets of reproductive technology is that the next red Frankenstein uh, has yet to be nicknamed. Right, is that the stem cell development technique I've been hearing about? Uh, so cellular skin, it started, with, it started with stem cells, but it's cellular skin, cellular tissue. Okay, okay. Skin. Very interesting. Very confounding. <laughs> yeah. So say I have like an alternative question. Um, say for some reason we can't get this, you know, your donor bill of rights passed, like you want it to in every state at a federal level or however you want that to work. Is there another way around that? I mean, what prohibits an organization for voluntarily creating a sibling registry or is there a way that that this can be helped without government influence like how do you is there a possibility of that uh, I, i'm i'm not all that positive on it you know we have the sec and the fda and the atf and all these other initials right. uh, that recognize that industries don't police themselves all that well. And these organizations have been put in place for the, to serve the public good. Right. Right. Uh, and here we have uh, conception uh, totally unregulated. Do you think it's because it's such a sensitive topic that it's become, that it's been so, it's gone so far being unregulated? Do you think it's because we're playing with, life like i mean it's different than i would imagine the atf which is obviously alcohol drugs tobacco all that like because this is centered in bringing life into the world and it's so sensitive and all people want is to be able to bring life into the world i mean obviously a lot of people want to do that um do you think I, it's regulated because of that because it's such an emotionally charged topic <laughs> when i looked at the science things weren't adding up to me and then I started following the money. Got it. That's what I figured. Okay. The gross margin on a, a sperm is something like 4,000%. Mm. 
Now, I've been in business. I know gross margins are pretty strong, but holy cow, that's a powerful, powerful motivator. Money is a powerful motivator. The forces of uh, a free market on something that gives that kind of gross margin. Wow. It says it on my dollar bill, right? On God, in God we trust and the rest pay cash. The gentleman that we interviewed about being a sperm donor at a young man, interestingly, he was in college in Boston and was approached in a public setting and essentially was scouted. And they yeah. said, like your look and we, and come to this place. He thought it was a modeling gig. Uh-huh. He thought that he was signing up to do photos because they liked his look and then got there to discover, oh no, we actually want you to do semen donation. And they paid him 50, 60 dollars. Yeah. Might have been 50, might have been a hundred dollars. I can't remember at the time. There in there. And then like you say, then you have a 4,000% profit line on that. I mean, talk about ethical infringements. Everything about that story gives me the creepiest of creepies. Uh, that's evolved. It was in the early days, they were just using medical students primarily. Uh, and, and now it's gone off the rails in that regard. Uh, and there's no genetic testing required on on that uh, donor who thought he was signing up to a modeling gig. Yeah. And I genuinely wonder, like, if it is so easy for people to lie. I mean, like, is there no filtration system that happens with spur with donors? Like, they just are going to assume you're going to tell the truth. But, like, are there limitations for, like, what it says on the paperwork? Like, are you allowed to donate if you're a smoker? Are you allowed to donate if you you're you have a history of like heart disease in your family like is there any kind of limitations currently that it even just asks on the form to allow people to be able to donate or can literally anybody come in and donate yeah the the general practice as i have understood is that uh, people that volunteer to be a donor fill out a form mm -hmm. uh, there's there's no filtration on finding if uh if they were truthful right and, you know, it's like the schizophrenic that claimed that he was a PhD and he spoke six languages or four languages. Uh, so there's no check and balance on that to, to uh, validate, uh, nor is there any law saying they have to, and no law if somebody lies on the form. That's so fascinating to me. Because I feel like, remind me if I'm wrong, Aaron, but didn't Sean say that they did do like a semen analysis on him? I don't remember. I don't remember. Perhaps. I can't remember either. Um, if they, he said that they did any kind of even just like semen check. I can't re recall. I think they do a basic semen just for the sperm itself, just to say, okay, this sperm is viable. That 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 they actually have a product there. Yeah, in the old days, they wanted people that were either married or engaged and uh, a little older and uh, more solid in their career choice uh, because they didn't want to test for venereal disease. Wow. Right. So even, even in the old days, they weren't testing. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. Now, I frozen, frozen sperm got to be, thanks to the AIDS epidemic in the late 80s, and there was a better way to screen it if it was frozen. That makes sense. So, I realize that. I didn't put that together. 
I have a question from obviously, you know, this seems to have as a donor conceived child, obviously it seems like this really impacted you emotionally, spiritually, whatever, however you want to call it. What kind of resources do you think should be provided to donor conceived children? Like what kind of, like, I know you, you mentioned multiple times, like we need to be thinking about the donor conceived, like what they're, how they're going to live their life and the impact this has on them. What kind of resources do you think are imperative for that, for those people? Well, that's a good question. It has uh, several pieces to it and several different answers as a result. Uh, The uh, responses for uh, folks that find late in life that they were misattributed are pretty similar, no matter the reason why, whether it be late discovery, closed adoption, or donor conception, or uh, an extramarital affair. There's a lot of disruption in the whole identity uh, process. And it is, uh, it's traumatic. And the therapists today are ill-prepared, I believe, for the wave that will be coming as more and more people go through DNA testing and find out by accident that uh, their DNA and their birth certificate just don't line up. Something is askew. I, so I- All of the social research that has been done to date states that in the best interest of the child, if the understanding of his his or her genealogy is part of his or her woodwork right at the outset, uh, there's not that same room for the identity trauma that goes with it. Like if I had known right from the get-go that uh, dad wasn't biological. You would, it would have been better for you. Would have been better for me, sure. Yeah. That's all the research I've done. I've done quite a bit of research too, just as like a person hoping to adopt. Um, but before this, actually, we were intending on adopting embryos. That was something, a path that we had gone down and it was a really interesting process. Um, We were required to do like a psych eval, but that was it. I mean, and I don't know, I mean, you could lie on a psych eval too, I guess, you know, like that's a thing that could happen. So I don't know, I've just been, that was a much easier process than I kind of thought it would be, if that makes sense. One thing that was interesting about your process was that the couple who had originally planned to donate embryos had adopted them themselves. Yes. So those embryos had been passed through three different families at that point. And that that never happened. But what an interesting phenomenon that the couple that made those embryos donated them and then that couple was able to donate them a second time. Again, no restrictions, no limitations on how we can hand off frozen embryo. Uh, some people that are donor conceived feel somewhat commoditized. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I had never thought about that, but yeah, absolutely. So what a- it is now, it was 22 years it took me to, uh, to learn the... Uh, uh, source of my seed. I just would not quit until I found my answers. And uh, all of those uh, uh, feelings I had about uh, trauma on my childhood and the grief I felt for the uh, for the death of my dad 
uh, and uh, some of the uh, uh, PTSD symptoms I had, camouflaging my issues from Vietnam, all came to roost once again, once I learned everything that I had learned. Once again, I, I just uh, experienced all of the, the issues. So to help me heal from that, I just really felt that I had to reveal, not only what, reveal what I had learned about the uh, science of donor conception and the uh, flaws in the, in the community, but just about myself as well. So uh, my book is a composite of a, a deeply intimate memoir, uh, as well as a tell-all expose on the fertility industry from the lens of somebody who is a late discovery donor conceived person. Well, I really appreciate your honesty and your bravery in doing that. Because again, I think the audience today, especially in Bryant's age group and younger, they're just, they don't remember growing up in a society that was based on secrecy and um, pretending, you know, when you have lived your life on social media, it's easy to forget that people prior to you didn't do that, yeah. that families kept their dark secrets to themselves. And it takes a lot of courage to come out and speak publicly. So I really, really appreciate that you did. And I'm sure that all the people that have access to this now that probably fall into a category similar to yours, however that looks, and everybody that will come from from this point on, you're doing a great service. And I think it's just really, really profound. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, I put a, a few goals together before I published Uprooted Family Trauma, Unknown Origins and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. The first one was to positively impact the whole practice of uh, assisted reproductive technology. Once again, I'm all for science to enable wanting people to have a family if it's done with consideration for the people that science creates. Uh, number two, to uh, influence the legislative agenda along the lines of that donor-conceived Bill of Rights. And number three, to speak to the emotional uh, needs and well-being of all people that find that they are misattributed. Uh, because our, our responses are very similar, no matter the reason of misattribution. And today there's 50 million people in the DNA database. And the experts think that some 4% of us are misattributed for whatever the reason. Mm -hmm. uh, some can make a cogent case, the number is actually much higher than that. Some will make a cogent case that it's a little lower than that, but most of the people will get their head around 4% and say, okay, we'll use that as a talking point. In my high school class, 100 kids, that means that four of us are, are misattributed for whatever the reason. I know I'm one of them. Uh, a couple of my classmates came to me and said, uh, gosh, uh, Peter, we're having trouble understanding our DNA results. Can you help us? And I went through the process to enable them to discover that they were misattributed. And wow. they know one another. So in my high school class, there's four anyway. Uh, so if I can use that as a loose validation of the 4%, how many parents do you have? Right. Two, right? Yeah. How many, how many grandparents? Four. How many great-grandparents? Eight. And then you can go on and on. It becomes geometric in proportion. So if 4% uh, is the number, 
and I can take this back several generations, that means that my entire high school graduating class of 100 kids is misattributed to one or more of their grandparents up to the third to sixth great grandparents. Interesting. So uh, all, all those stories of family lore and the, and the Mayflower might be true, but then again, they might not be true. Uh, DNA does not lie. Right. Mm. Now, uh, my, uh, my venture capital uh, background uh, tells me that medicine, uh, uh, personalized medicine is really going to be the primary marketplace for DNA information. Uh, this whole thing of am I 20% Italian or 20% what you know, is uh, fine for the melting pot people, but that is the market penetration strategy. That's early penetration. I believe that in, within a decade, within a decade, you'll find kiosks inside of the local pharmacy. Where you can do DNA tests? Get into the vial, insert your credit card, get an instant analysis of which vitamin on the shelves is specific to your DNA composite. And with that, there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences of people looking at the information saying, hmm, something is, something's askew. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, for the uh, therapy industry, the psychologists are just ill-prepared for the amount of trauma will be created by the fact that DNA does not lie and all those family secrets are going to be exposed. And if they're not donor conceived family secrets, they're extramarital secrets or closed adoption secrets or cousin Mary versus Aunt Martha secrets. Right. Absolutely. Peter, this has been such an interesting conversation and we're just so thankful to have had your expertise today. I think that you pose so many interesting questions and ways of improvement that we can make the reproductive world a better place. So we thank you for spending so much time with us today. I'm happy to. You can read about the Donor Conceived Bill of Rights on my website, www.peterjbonnie.com. And certainly order up my book if you want to have a, a real rendition of the history of assisted reproductive technology from biblical references right through to the present day from the lens of somebody who is donor conceived. Absolutely. And we'll link all of that information in our show notes too. Thanks. Amazon reviews are always appreciated. <laughs> reviews in general, people need to write more reviews. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity to tell my story. Thank you so much for being here with us today. You're Let's welcome. stay in touch. Yes, very Good. much so. Have Bye. a great day, Peter. You too. Bye. The Protected Space Podcast is hosted by Aaron Attaway and Bryant Liggett and is brought to you by The Fertility Resort. To learn more about us, head over to thefertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at Protected Space Pod.